Welcome to the Andrew Young School Podcast, where each month we interview a member of the Andrew Young School community who embodies the school's charge to think ahead and innovate in the fields of criminal justice, economics, public management and policy, social work, and urban studies. In this episode, we'll speak with three members of the Georgia Health Policy Center team who are conducting research on the adoption of telehealth and telemedicine during the COVID-19 pandemic. Susan McLaren is an assistant project director with the Georgia Health Policy Center and leads the research and evaluation work for the Center of Excellence for Children's Behavioral Health. Dimple Desai is a senior research associate supporting research and evaluation efforts within the Center of Excellence for Children's Behavioral Health. And Amanda Phillips-Martinez is an assistant project director at the Georgia Health Policy Center, co-leading the center's community health systems development team. During our discussion, all three researchers shared information from their latest studies and discussed overall trends in healthcare and health policy that have resulted from the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm here with the telehealth team from the Georgia Health Policy Center. I'd like to thank you all for sitting down with me virtually today. Thanks for having us. I wanted to begin at the beginning of the pandemic. It feels like forever ago. But as we approach almost a year of lockdown measures of of lockdown measures of various sorts, what can we learn from that initial shift to telehealth in February, March, April of 2020? Hi, Taylor. This is Susan McLaren. Um, thank you for having us. So I think it's helpful to first define what we mean by telehealth versus telemedicine. Um, those are two very distinct terms. And so I think for the audience, it might be help- helpful to just put some clarity around that. So, you know, the Center for Connected Health Policy defines telehealth as a collection or a means or methods for enhancing health care, public health, health education delivery using telecommunication technologies. But telemedicine is the use of those telecommunication systems specifically for clinical diagnosis, treatment, and monitoring. And I think today most of our conversations as it relates to policy really is impacted in that area of telemedicine. So kind of back to your question, the pandemic has really served as a catalyst for telemedicine adoption and innovation. And this has been facilitated through many federal and state policy changes that have eased many of the regulatory restrictions in a number of different areas. So, you know, reimbursement, this is often the first that is mentioned because historically telemedicine has been reimbursed at a lower rate than in-person visits. And the current regulatory modifications that we saw come out of the federal and state governments have increased these rates to be comparable to in-person visits during the public health emergency. And that has really helped to provide a sustainability factor for healthcare providers um, during the pandemic. Also, we've seen a shift in who can provide um, care through telemedicine. So we refer to this as what we call scope of practice. And the allowances that um, have come about as a result of some of the policy changes really permit a broader array of healthcare practitioners, including like advanced practice nurses, physician assistants, um, some skill building practitioners like health education, like patient specialists, um, to provide services via telemedicine and be reimbursed for them. We also also saw changes in can receive services via telemedicine. 
So previously, like Medicare regulations required that a medical relationship be pre-established before a patient may receive care via telemedicine. But this criteria has been waived as a result of the public health emergency. And Medicare also restricted access to individuals um, who lived in rural areas where there were kind of extreme pro- provider shortages. Now, any Medicare recipient, regardless of where they live, is eligible to receive services via telemedicine. The policy allowances have also expanded what services can be provided. Um, we refer to this as scope of services. So where um, very few services may have been, have been eligible to be provided and reimbursed via telemedicine before the pandemic, now that um, array of services or that scope of services really mimics what's available in a face-to-face visit with your provider. There have also been changes in how telemedicine services may be delivered. The most common is virtually incorporating you know, video and audio. But in there are some circumstances when virtual connections are not feasible, even audio-only or telephonic services may be provided. We also saw changes in where telemedicine services are rendered by providers. So historically, we think about bricks and mortar, right, going to the doctor's office. Um, and even prior to the pandemic, um, patients had to at least present at a clinical office to be connected with another provider through telemedicine elsewhere, what we call the digital site. But now um, the changes in the regulatory policies have allowed uh, both providers and patients greater flexibility. Most importantly, patients can now receive telemedicine services in their home. They don't have to travel to a doctor's office to engage in that um, service. We've also seen Congress and the administration um, really pour funds in to supporting access um, to telemedicine services, not only through the CARES Act, but through a number of other funding mechanisms like grants to state. And this is to support not only infrastructure like broadband and technology, but also some emergency funding to providers to deliver services under the um, public health emergency. And, you know, there have been other federal policy changes, including waiving of penalties for violations um, of the HIPAA privacy, security, and breach notification rules, what we kind of all refer to as just HIPAA. And so if you're providing um, telemedicine services in good faith, but there are some incidental um, breaches in some of the security, those may be waived. And that's really to allow providers to have a broader array of virtual platforms to engage with uh, consumers in care. So now we can utilize platforms like Zoom, um, where historically it would have had to been some certified electronic um, system um, to engage in, in telemed services. And I think finally, it's really important to note that many of the changes that were initiated by the federal government that apply to Medicare and to some extent Medicaid have had a ripple effect on the private insurance market where many are making the same or similar allowances to their current policies and guidelines to expand access to healthcare services via telemedicine. That actually leads really nicely into my next question. Because I think a lot of discussion around policy within the pandemic has been around economic recovery and things like that. But Mm -hmm. 
I'm interested to hear y'all's thoughts on how the current pandemic policy environment is impacting the delivery of telemedicine through both programs like Medicare and private insurance, because it seems like we're really seeing a more widespread implementation of this kind of care. Yeah, yes, that's a great question. So, you know, prior to the pandemic, many states were actually in the process of examining and adopting laws and implementing regulatory guidelines and policies that were already expanding, if you will, the scope of practice, reimbursement options, and types of services um, that could be provided via telemedicine. But the pandemic has actually catapulted that adoption of telemedicine and telehealth. You know, policy changes that could have you know, historically taken three, five, ten years to really implement became effective, you know, almost overnight. There are initiatives at the federal level still to permanently even extend some of these allowances that are um, active under the um, public health emergency. But I really think it's the culmination of the federal and state policy changes as a result of the public health emergency that has given providers just so much more latitude to be innovative and adaptive in modifying practice to meet patient needs. And, you know, these changes extend beyond how to use the technology or how to revamp workflows, staffing, and billing, but also how to engage with patients in a virtual manner and how to guide patients on how to use the technology to be part of the visit and giving guidance to patients on the need to, you know, protect their own privacy when they're taking part in telemedicine visits. And, you know, many of these activities and roles require new ways of thinking and operating that differ from what is needed in an in-person practice. And many healthcare practices and systems are developing, you know, strategic plans and action plans and testing them out and making additional changes to make them better based on staff feedback, patient feedback, as well as what they're learning from their peers. And many professional associations have helped provide the healthcare community with information and resource options to kind of guide these transitions. And, you know, I think we, we must include a conversation around patients and consumers when we really think about uptake and adoption of telemedicine. And, you know, um, there are some pros and some cons of what we're what we're learning in this um, pandemic. So, you know, I do think that patients and consumers are thinking differently about telemedicine as a way of receiving care. Those who were once skeptical of using technology in this manner um, are finding it as an acceptable and sometimes easier means of connecting with their healthcare provider especially now that it's an option through their health plan. But there are still many consumers that are foregoing care, even with all of these allowances to try and facilitate access to services, because some still don't know it's available. Um, They may not know how to use it, or they may not have the technology to support it. And, you know, we know clinical data is telling us that many consumers are not making appointments for their preventive and follow-up sick um, visits. And consequently, you know, we're starting to see a big campaign by the healthcare community to remind patients to continue to engage in their care. And um, I also think that this is a great opportunity for policymakers and insurers and healthcare providers and patients find ways to balance access to care in both the face-to-face 
and online modality and to understand for whom and under what circumstances each of these modalities work best in terms of both access and quality of care. You know, we also know that many states require annual balanced budgets, right? And so costs must be considered when we think about um, healthcare services that are funded through state budgets. So increased use of care via telemedicine, for an example, may have an immediate short-term increase in cost that can burden a state annual Medicaid budget. However, there is an argument that if care is provided in a timely manner in the right place at the right time, the long-term benefits should be, at minimum, cost-neutral and result in improved health. But honestly, much remains to be learned by the rapid adoption of telehealth as a result of the public health emergency, but innovation that is occurring at the state and provider level is exciting and I think can really help pave new paths forward. One of the things you brought up just then has me thinking about technology adoption more generally. Mm -hmm. You know, we find that technology kind of spreads out through uh, what some technologists call diffusion theory, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, there are early adopters who buy the latest and greatest tool and latch onto everything right as it comes out. And then there's varying degrees of acceptance as you move through the larger population. How do you find that healthcare providers and policymakers are dealing with this skepticism as telehealth, telemedicine expand from kind of an early adopter stage to really a mainstream way of accessing healthcare? Sure. Um, so I, I think out of necessity, there has been, um, if you will, somewhat of a, a as you described it, a, a mandatory adoption. We, we initially had a complete shutdown of um, to many healthcare services that were not essential at the very, at the early peak of the pandemic back in March and April, really trying to recognize that, um, healthcare resources need to be well directed towards, um, the rising number of severe cases that were resulting in hospitalizations, if you will. And so we really saw a lot of, um, perhaps community-based, preventive-based, um, wellness-based services kind of pushed to the wayside. But um, I think as the healthcare community more broadly has recognized that this and the policymakers, I should say, as well, as they have recognized that um, what I think we thought might be a shorter-term emergency has become a long-term emergency is that we can't ignore those other factors as well, and the other um, healthcare needs of the community and the population more broadly, and that there's just, um, you know, working closely with, I think, public health, we have begun to identify um, ways in which care can be provided safely, and I think telemedicine is one of those facilitators. And um, different communities are able to do different things based on their resources and the needs of their community. Sure. And one of the things that you brought up, too, is that as we move into kind of the longer term effects of COVID-19, different services are now, like you said, coming off the back burner, so to speak. They're, can, they've always been important, but 
we kind of put them on pause and now we're realizing, well, we still need to deliver these kinds of care. I'm thinking particularly of things like behavioral health providers, school-based programs, rural health programs. How are these traditionally face-to-face efforts adopting telemedicine approaches now that we're in month eight of the COVID-19 related restrictions? Hi, Taylor. This is Dimple. Thank you so much for having me on as well. I can certainly speak to the behavioral health providers delivering services to children in the provider clinic, as well as those delivering school-based programming. For some context setting, providers engaged in school-based programming are located within the school building and really providing therapeutic support in an environment familiar and convenient to the child, addressing a primary barrier of access to mental health services. So as you asked, with schools moving to remote learning due to the COVID-19 pandemic, mental health providers transitioned from traditional in-person means to support students to virtual delivery of services via telemedicine. And really the way we have seen it and what we have learned is there's really been three priorities around sort of how that movement took place. I think priority one was really gaining access to the technology and in some cases enhancing the existing infrastructure or even creating the infrastructure. For example, for federal relaxation in the regulation of how to deliver telemed, while it provided flexibility, it provided flexibility in identification of the appropriate virtual platform. But then there's also a need to build comfortability within those platforms. As providers did implement using those platforms, They were able to identify um, a need for technical expertise within their provider agencies, which may not have been there previously. Some are using Zoom and others have opted for Google Hangouts. But each has brought its own pros and cons and how it supports the provider engage with children. For school-based programming, an additional challenge we are hearing is also that is related to any firewalls that are preloaded on the school-issued laptops, which have prevented access to virtual platforms. Priority two was really supporting the behavioral health workforce. There was an immediate need for increased supervision with direct care behavioral health providers, and then also allowing those providers opportunities to engage in peer interactions to support adaptations. Seeking out training opportunities professional for professional development and de- delivering therapeutic services via telemed was also important, as well as really um, identifying what technical support was needed to inform the practice. For example, we know that many behavioral health providers rely on a varied um, list of evidence-based practices. So what were sort of the newer um, strategies to to deliver these modalities, but in a virtual setting. And again, behavioral health provider agencies were creating a space for providers to come together and interact as peers so they can discuss cases and learn from their broader network. And I think really prioritizing both building on the infrastructure and supporting the workforce has given behavioral health providers an opportunity to innovate. For example, from a workforce perspective, many providers did report creating kits and delivering them to their younger patients. One of the things very early on sort of identified as a challenge um, was that it is more difficult to to really keep the attention um, of younger children receiving services as it was as opposed to the older children. So many providers did create these kits that they would use as part of their therapeutic support 
two children. Um, these kids really, it included a variety of objects um, that were really geared to um, inform not only the active telemedicine session, but also as a resource that the um, child could rely on even beyond the appointment. Other providers utilize games and scavenger hunts and things like that. And then in, an example in terms of innovation coming from, again, sort of addressing the infrastructure needs, behavioral, behavioral health provider agencies have invested in laptops and additional laptops and tablets in MiFi hotspots as well, all in an effort to be able to address kind of that connectivity um, issue that um, some of their um, families and, and children were experiencing in being able to engage in these telemedicine services. Eileen, I'm so blown away by some of these innovative approaches, particularly things like these kits that they're distributing to younger children who need something to keep their attention. It's, you know, a lot has been said throughout the course of the pandemic about the placelessness of it all, feeling like your whole life kind of exists in a 16 by 9 uh, screen of your laptop or your tablet. And I guess there's this misconception, perhaps, that behavioral health services can't be delivered through a sheet of glass and an internet connection, that you need the physical touch, you need the space. But by giving these shared objects to the patient or to the child, you're essentially bringing some of the space into the room that they're in, wherever that may be. Do you think that that is a potential path forward for continued tangible services, doing this kind of hybrid approach where the provider and the recipient have the same set of physical objects in front of them, even if they're in separate rooms? Absolutely. We have learned, um, as I mentioned, providers really rely on a, a, a varied list of evidence-based practices and play therapy is certainly one of them, especially when engaging with those younger children. And so it it took a, a few iterations of sort of being, of, of engaging with these children on virtual platforms to really identify what are these um, what are these uh, uh, strategies that we need to employ now that we are doing this via virtual and so having an object that really brings in some of those principles of play therapy has really helped to engage the younger children for sure um, scavenger hunts is another great uh, strategy that the providers are sharing with us you know having the child go and, and find an object and this is really a way for them to initiate that initial engagement and then get the child comfortable with um, being able to interact in, in a space that, as you said, includes the screen. And some of this these strategies are just now that, that as you said, we've been in this for a minute and, and will be for the foreseeable future as well, delivering services in this way. Uh, this innovation is just now coming out. Um, and so it's been, it's been great for the providers to interact with one another to really be able to share some of these uh, ways that they've been able to pivot the, this, um, this type of service delivery to this modality and, and, and be able to learn from one another. And are we finding generally speaking, that those best practices are shared through existing professional networks? Or is this kind of a new arrival in the age of uh, working from home, so to speak? Are we seeing kind of a rise in uh, collaboration between providers. I think it's I think it's both. We we for sure are seeing the continued engagement within the professional networks, but because of sort of COVID being a new phenomenon to many of us, there are 
there is a wealth of new learning opportunities and resources that are being disseminated um, locally, regionally, and then of course, certainly federally as well. So, so there is a lot of um, resources out there and some of it is sort of more g- general to a specific um, a cohort of of, of students, maybe it's uh, engaging with elementary school kids versus the older high schoolers, or sometimes it's topic specific. Um, how do you uh, work with patients? Um, how do you work with students in this COVID world? Understanding that there is a collective trauma that we're all experiencing. And then other resources are very evidence-based specific. As I mentioned, how do you um, how do you transfer some of your knowledge and expertise and, and strategies that you might employ in a in a play therapy model to be delivered via virtually. So we're really seeing a lot of resources come from a varied audience um, and really across a varied uh, and organized by varied uh, topics as well. So then my next question is for Amanda. Amanda, how does the Georgia Health Policy Center define sustainability? So there are uh, a lot of definitions of sustainability out there, and we've kept ours pretty simple. Um, We define sustainability is when um, programs or services continue because they are valued and draw support and resources. So if if we talk about healthcare, uh, healthcare services are likely to sustain when um, clinical leadership providers and patients are all bought in, um, seeing the value of the service, and when that service results in good outcomes for everybody, for the patient for the provider, and um, for the clinical entity. So then applying that to our current discussion, what would sustainable telemedicine look like in the eyes of the Health Policy Center? So I have lots of conversations with uh, rural and frontier communities across the country specifically. So what I am hearing from providers and healthcare leaders and patient-serving organizations is that Um, When we talk about telehealth and sustainable telehealth, particularly right now in the middle of the pandemic, I think that the clearer the policy landscape is, both at the state and at the federal levels, the easier it is for clinicians and leadership to plan for the longer term. That means planning for the training needed, the staffing and workforce needed, the equipment needed. So because sustainable telehealth requires, you know, kind of a a clear policy and payment pathway forward to to help folks kind of plan for the investments that they need to make, I I think the more that they know about um, what's, you know, how long these expanded options are going to be available to them, the easier that their planning can be. Because sustainable telehealth requires buy-in from leadership, from providers, and again, from patients, um, it has to be working for all of those parties. Leadership and providers need to be comfortable that there is a reimbursement path forward for them. Providers and patients need to be comfortable that the quality metrics and the quality data are there um, and that the outcomes are good. Um, So it has to be working both on the policy and the experience side. Sustainable telehealth services need to be 
effective and producing good results. There needs to be, and for that to happen, you need to have training and staffing in place to support it. And there need to be good relationship and efficient workflows between, you know, those rural sites where the care is being received and maybe the more urban specialty care sites. So there got, there has to be some good communication flow. And again, um, foundational to all that is kind of a a clear policy and payment pathway forward for them that's kind of longer term. And that really kind of leads to my next question. And this is primarily for you, Amanda, but I think everyone can chime in on it. What can providers do on their end to ensure that these telehealth solutions aren't just a temporary fix for the remainder of the COVID-19 crisis, but really can increase access to treatment for years and years to come? I think that's a really important question because there's so so much of this policy conversation feels outside of folks kind of locus of control. But I do think that there are things that um, providers themselves and kind of uh, healthcare leaders can do um, to help drive some of these decisions at the state and federal levels. And that's really paying attention to your data. You know, as we can expect, we're hearing from some providers that uh, this expanded telehealth, um, the expanded telehealth opportunities afforded by the pandemic are like a panacea and it's going really well. And um, they're reaching people that they weren't able to reach before and distance and uh, transportation are no longer issues. For behavioral and mental health, the stigma of having your car parked outside the clinic is no longer an issue. And so this has been an incredibly positive experience. While others worry about quality of care and they worry about missing those who are unconnected um, to, to the technology and to broadband. So I think the more that providers can listen to their colleagues and really listen to their patients and collect data both on the experience and really watch their quality metrics and get into the practice of studying those data and then sharing those data up to leadership and up to policymakers. That's really where I think providers can drive the sustainability conversation as it relates to telehealth. Taylor, I'll just add to that. I I really think it's important to continue to address the infrastructure, um, the workforce, and even the workflow. And so for infrastructure, I think, you know, ensuring that uh, you secure connectivity in those deserts, you know, across the state where we know um, there isn't as much capability for for being able to engage in in, uh, telemed services, as well as um, ensuring adequate access to the technology. You know, um, as I mentioned, in the beginning, it was a little bit of sort of learning and identifying what technology works best for whom, but being able to sort of make some of those longer term decisions and then and then realizing, is there additional staff that, that needs to be hired to support that new, you know, IT staff might uh, need to be hired to, to kind of support this um, larger adoption of telemed services. And then really thinking about the workforce again, um, you know, there are, as I mentioned, a wealth of resources and knowledge and trainings and 
best practices that are just now sort of emerging on how to best do this work. So a continuation of those resources to support that workforce, as well as any um, continuing education opportunities relevant to topics or relevant to uh, serving a specific demographic, all of those are going to continue to be important. And then in terms of workflow, really preparing for how to retain um, both modes of that service delivery, um, both the telemed as well as the face-to-face in-person. You know, one, I think coming out of this, there will be a a, a population of of clients that will want to remain uh, with telemed support and then others that will want to go back to -to face-to-face. So what does that look like in terms of being able to provide uh, what is needed and requested of 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 patients. And then really, I think, Taylor, what cuts across all three is having a lens of cultural competency. Uh, be intentional about learning the culture and context of the children and communities that are being served and how COVID-19 and this pandemic has really affected them. I think it's going to continue to be important as we think about telehealth solutions and, and how to sustainably continue those um, during the crisis and then even beyond. So then I want to end with something that is near and dear to all of us here at the Andrew Young School. Talking about our underserved populations, this has been a constant thread thread through all of this conversation is how do we make sure that we have access to telemedicine and telehealth services for patients in various underserved populations, whether that's rural populations that may not have broadband or low-income households that don't have access to devices. All sorts of factors play into this. What sorts of policies could our leaders enact to improve access for everyone and not just for the most affluent, the most urban patients? Hi, Taylor. This is Susan again. And I think that's a great question. And, you know, it's going to be so important to see um, which telemedicine policies, you know, are only transitional and which of those become transformational. And I think the jury's still out on that. Um, You know, we continue to see the research that's showing that even during um, the pandemic, even in spite of the allowances that we have in place to really help to facilitate access to services um, through telemedicine, that the health disparities continue. So certainly we recognize that it is not the silver bullet that's going to fix many of those issues. But I do think when we're thinking about assessing access and we're thinking about policies, we need to continue to not only think about the infrastructure um, in terms of broadband. We have to think about what I think Dimple just and and Amanda, Amanda alluded to is understanding the consumer or the patient's perspective and what that means to engage in care through telemedicine. And, you know, having I think um, greater cultural competency or cultural humility is going to be very important in um, how our healthcare providers and our communities help to address these issues. Um, you know, data will be used, we hope, to inform the decision-making, but it has to expand beyond the clinical and the cost data. And it really must incorporate the voice of the consumer and the communities, especially those from the underserved population. I think that's a, um, you've captured that really well, Susan, um, and this is Amanda. And I'll just say that any rural health leader that you talk to um, will tell you that more often than not, 
um, rural communities and collaboratives have the solutions. They can figure this out. They just need the policy barriers to get out of the way. I mean, we have heard stories from our rural and frontier communities of, you know, um, school counselors jumping on school buses and riding uh, along the bus route to hand out the school lunches and connecting with their kids via telehealth from the school bus in front of the home and setting up hotspots and libraries and, and McDonald's and setting up drive-through telehealth appointments for those who are not connected to care. And I think that if policymakers can think about um, the ways that staffing models, that community health workers, that care coordinators can be part of helping to connect the those who are most disconnected, both from services and from broadband and from technology into care. I think that the opportunities um, and the expansion of access is really exciting. We just need to open up those pathways and find a, a, a way that those connecting agencies and those connecting entities and individuals can be part of the care model and of the telehealth uh, service delivery model. And I think, um, you know, in a, just adding on to um, what Susan and Amanda, Amanda have shared, I think just, again, really continuing to support the workforce, thinking about those behavioral health providers, giving them opportunities really to have some upstream training of future practitioners as well as current practitioners. Um, and then just acknowledging that, that the workforce, um, you know, is, is also experiencing the pandemic as well. And so one of the things that we hear from our behavioral health providers is it has been a little bit of a challenge of balancing both professional and personal lives. And so anything to do to support the workforce and um, training and ensuring that they receive the adequate training to provide these services, but as well as just um, support as behavioral health professionals um, uh, so that uh, so that they also um are, are able to continue to support their clients uh, in, 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 a, in a healthy way. And Taylor, I have one last comment. And I think, you know, we, we've touched a lot here on access and workforce and infrastructure. And, and where we are going to have to continue to be patient, I think, is really understanding um, what the last eight months of effort and um, the expansion of telemedicine really means in terms of quality. Um, I, I think we must continue to keep our eye to that because um, access does not equal quality of care. And so we really are just going to have to continue because different services will work well when delivered um, via telemedicine than others will. And different consumers will, you know, progress differently via telemedicine than those who engage in um, face-to-face care. So I think that that's also going to be um, a big issue that we, uh, in public health, that we as consumers, that um, we as a nation need to keep our eye on and really understand that those key questions, those contextual questions, for whom and under what circumstances does telemedicine work best so that we can... um, ensure that people are not just getting access, but they're getting access to the quality care they need to improve health. 
Well, this has been an enlightening conversation for me and hopefully for our listeners as well. I want to thank the team from the Georgia Health Policy Center, Susan McLaren, Amanda Martinez, and Dimple Desai. Thank you all so much for sitting down with me today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kayla. It was a pleasure. To learn more about the Georgia Health Policy Center and their COVID-19 related research, visit ghpc.gsu.edu. The Andrew Young School podcast is produced by Taylor Olmsted with production assistance on this episode from Jennifer Giratano and Lori Solomon. Our executive producer is Ivani Raval. We are a production of Georgia State University's Andrew Young School of Policy Studies located in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. To learn more about the Andrew Young School, visit us online at aysps.gsu.edu or follow us on social media at aysps.gsu. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to leave a review for us in your podcast app of choice, and we'll be back next month interviewing another policy thought leader from the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University. 